Heavenly Father, I do rejoice in uh, the fellowship with these dear servants who had come from many parts of the nation, who have come because in your sovereignty you have worked in their hearts and you have given them a desire to understand more about helping the spiritually oppressed. And I just rejoice in that commitment, that awareness that the Lord will use each one of us to reach out to those that are wounded, those who need uh, the comfort and the help that comes only from the Lord. And so I pray that you'll continue to work powerfully among us. We're all a little weary after a very heavy day of listening to people uh, lecture and uh, just the fatigue of uh, uh, such a time is working on all of us, including the speaker. But I would pray that you would uh, refresh us all in the Lord. We reach out by faith for that quickening ministry of the Holy Spirit by which he pours uh, new life and spiritual and physical refreshment into us. And we just ask you tonight to make this a precious time. Through our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, turn to page E1. And you'll notice that uh, for a change, the notes are only three pages. And uh, I'm only going to, going to deal with two of them. But I will call your attention to uh, uh, to uh, Psalm 143. Uh, this prayer is definitely a prayer of desperate, prevailing intercession uh, based upon what I conclude to be a spiritual assault, severe spiritual assault from the kingdom of darkness. So I think if you will... Take that outline and uh, use it. You will find it very, very helpful. By the way, another testimony, and you can keep your notes open because I will be teaching you from uh, E1 and E2 uh, tonight. Another pastor, brother, from not too far from here, told how that he was here at the last conference and it just revolutionized his counseling ministry and God has opened up uh, I don't know whether we can find a time where we can work in opportunity for some of these testimonies to be shared because I think they would encourage you so we may uh, talk it over and see if we can work something like that out but I have another testimony I want to read to you. This is another pastor. Uh, I can't remember whether he's from Ohio or Indiana, but it's one of those two states. And um, Pastor Chuck Miller, he's uh, uh, with the Christian Church. And the Lord's just revolutionized his life and ministry through becoming aware of his spiritual authority and 
and doctrinal prayer. And last year, it wasn't even a year ago, he wrote, he, he came just for one day. Uh, he brought his wife to the conference we had in October of 2004 in Indianapolis. And when he came on the opening day, bringing his wife, he had to return to his home. But he shared this testimony with me, and I just thought it might encourage you if I'd read it to you tonight. Mark, until a week ago, until a week before the first IBC course uh, I had ever attended, I had not even heard of IBC or of Mark Bubeck. As I read The Adversary, I was amazed at what I was reading. I never prayed a printed prayer. On page 112, I found a powerful prayer of intercession which captured the attention of my spirit. I immediately thought of a sister, a member of my congregation who had become alienated from me and from this church. I had been told that she had said she would never return to church so long as I was there. I had given up on her. When we talked, she was left angry and I was left frustrated. The day before I left for the course, I led several of our church members in the prayer for our sister on page 112 of the adversary. When I returned home, I found a new confidence and an eagerness to react, to reach out to her rather. After a few days, I called her to see if we could try again to build a relationship. I confessed to mistakes and uh, reactions which had wounded her. I asked her to forgive me and consider the possibility of our trying again. All uh, ten times she, all this time she had been listening, saying nothing. I concluded by asking her, would you consider letting me call you to set up a time for us to talk? I was very encouraged when she agreed to let me call again, but there was little emotion. After Thanksgiving, I called her back, and I asked her if we could meet and talk about the enemy. She responded, I'd like that very much. I was shocked. What I didn't uh, know was that since my first call, she had come to a crisis of bitterness toward God. For some time, she had been deeply involved in Wicca and had accumulated dozens of books on the occult and witchcraft. In her anger toward God, she had looked forward to a TV special which she felt would finally help her break all ties to God. To her surprise and frustration, the program didn't accomplish that. Instead, it confused her. Remember, we had been praying for her for over a month. She asked God, if you're there, and if you still want me, you'll have to show me. Just as she finished that prayer, her phone rang. 
That was when I called her to ask if we could study together. Since then, she has been reconciled to God. She has reestablished her relationship with the church. She brought me all of her books on the occult and witchcraft, which we burned. I am so grateful for the training and teaching which I received through IBC, which directly led to the victory of this sister. Many other victories are continuing to unfold. We continue to learn together how to be free from Satan's snares. Isn't that a testimony? That's precious. That encourages us to keep on keeping on. And, uh, you know, it's just wonderful to have folks share out of their hearts like that because uh, and uh, the pastor who shared tonight, uh, his testimony was just that thrilling. So uh, hopefully we can work out a time where we can hear from him. Well, I'd like for you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to talk to you about desperate prevailing prayer. But before we get started, you know, I think it would honor God um, and uh, bless all of us if we just stand and honor God's word as I read it. And um, so will you do that? Let's just all of us stand. And I want to read the first chapter of Nehemiah, which is really a phenomenal, uh, desperate, prevailing prayer, and uh, how God honored it, what, uh, what amazing things he did uh, through Nehemiah's intercession. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his command, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my command, 
then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. May God illumine his word and motivate our hearts to be a people of desperate prevailing prayer. You may be seated. I'm sure that uh, many of us have had experiences where the Lord has called us to desperate prevailing prayer. The most memorable one in my experience was in my young years as a pastor. I had been pastoring this church for, let's see, about 10 years. And um, they had um, voted to send my wife and me on a sabbatical preaching mission to, uh, to Britain. Don Wesley White had arranged it, and uh, he had persuaded our deacons board that they ought to do that for us and for the ministry God would give us in Britain. But there was a complication. We had been through one large building program and we were about to launch the other. In fact, on the day that we uh, took off for, uh, for England, uh, we had a groundbreaking ceremony to build a new uh, part of our church plans and church plans. And I must confess that I had misgivings about leaving in such a critical time, but God had just opened the door so wide and we'd had such wonderful um, rapport during the first building program, I called free to do it. And God gave us a good ministry. Uh, during those three months, we were in Britain and also we spent some time in Berlin and uh, even speaking. We were the first Americans, according to one source, that had spoken behind the Iron Curtain after it had been built in East Berlin. And that was a memorable experience. But when we came home, the building program had proceeded nicely. But there was a great problem. The chairman of the building committee was terribly angry with the chairman of the trustees the two key people in the building program. And they had a real war going. And of course, they both shared with me the feelings of their hearts. And I, I just resorted to prayer. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I realized it was a very delicate situation. People were already choosing upside. And I said, Lord, I really don't know what to do. 
Would you give me wisdom? And the only thing he seemed to impress upon me was I wasn't to do anything. I was to pray. And begin to pitch in and work with the men. Because much of the building program was going on through our own men who were builders in the church. And so that's what I did. And like Nehemiah, uh, I set aside a whole week to fast. And I worked hard every day in that building program and just fasted before the Lord. I didn't tell anyone because the Lord had seemed to impress me that I should just be totally secret about it and uh, just the Lord knows. And amazing things began to happen. Everything started to quiet down. I never did have another conversation with those two men. But one day I saw them shaking hands and even hugging each other. And I knew God had intervened. God answers prayer. And it's wonderful to just let him do that. There's never been a time in the history of God's church that we needed desperate, prevailing prayer more than we need it now. We're in a desperate situation. There's a lot of churchianity and and uh, even mega churches, but uh, mostly made up of sitting, watching saints who know very little about uh, what it really means to walk with God. And unless we have revival, uh, we're uh, we're really in a desperate situation. People today often talk about church growth, and we have examples of people like Rick Warren, who in his purpose-driven life has had a great ministry toward many of us, but perhaps a tragic lack of focus upon real prayer in those books and his writings. Pastor Bill Hybels, Pastor is one of the most thriving, growing churches in America. And yet if you go to his seminars, you hear very little about prayer. It's all on programs, organizations, meeting people where they're at. And I don't criticize that. I just long for something different. God needs to bring us to be a broken people. People who want God more than they want life. 
There are some encouraging voices. Jim Simbola, who pastors the Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, has written uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, uh, Fresh Faith, Fresh Power, all of them based upon prayer. Their most their most uh, anointed services are Tuesday night prayer meetings. Largest attendance, more people come to Christ. It's just a phenomenal work of grace right in the heart of Brooklyn. And um, there are others, John Eldridge, I mentioned him. And he's beginning to learn about the importance of prayer. And desperate prevailing prayer. And Nehemiah is an example of that. And I would suggest to you that you just read through the book of Nehemiah again. It has a lot to do about spiritual warfare and about prayer. And of course, in that case, um, it came to the day where just Ezra just read the Bible, read the scripture. They didn't even have it like we have it. And the people just started to weep because the Spirit of God began to touch their hearts that they need to get right with God. And revival broke out. My first introduction to, uh, to prayer like this came when I was a student at the Moody Bible Institute. I was a boy off the farm in Iowa. A big city was rather foreign to me. I'd only been in big cities two or three times in my whole life when I went there as a student. And one of the first assignments that was given to me was to go to the uh, Cook County Hospital, which at that time was the largest hospital in the world, more patients. And... Uh, we were to go every Sunday afternoon during visitor's hour. We were to get there early enough to hand out gospel tracts to people as they came to visit their loved ones and friends. And then after you know that thinned out and people were no longer coming, we were to go up into the wards and look for those who patients who didn't have visitors. And then we would visit with them and hopefully lead some of them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, the second part of the assignment I liked. But that first part, I just, I really did not like that. Because I was supposed to hand out these gospel tracts to people who the last thing they were interested in was receiving a gospel tract when they were rushing to visit a loved one. And I was at a very sensitive young man, and when they would reject my offers, I just felt crushed. Consequently, most of the time, I found myself hiding behind my favorite pillar there in the lobby of Cook County Hospital. And one Sunday I was doing that when I looked across the lobby, and there was a black man who was doing what I was supposed to be doing. But there was a difference. I noticed that uh, there was a radiance 
on his face. And I watched and I never saw a single person decline his track offer. Some would take it, walk a few steps, and stop and start to read it. And look back at, at this black brother. And I was really puzzled. I wondered, what's the difference? Why is he so amazingly successful at doing what I just dreaded to do? Because nobody wanted my track. It wasn't until the last day of that assignment that I learned what the difference was. The leader of our group took us on a tour. And I can still remember it. We were walking down this big uh, hallway and we came to a door and he just pushed it open. It was a small room, a little kind of hole in the wall room. And there was a desk in the corner with a gooseneck lamp on it. And there was a large overstuffed chair that had a white sheet over it and some other office things. And our officer said, or our leader said, that chair is Chaplain Lily's throne chair. He never just sits in that chair. Every day before he goes up into the wards to visit the patients, he stays there on his knees or sitting in that chair until God tells him it's time for him to go up that his heart's prepared. And when I heard that, no one needed to tell me. I knew what made the difference. You see, when, when we pray like Nehemiah prayed, and when we pray like Chaplain Lily prayed, that kind of praying always leaves its mark on you. Uh, other people know something different. The hand of God's on this person. And uh, one thing will always mark significant movements of God in the affairs of men. That movement will be preceded and accompanied and followed by this kind of desperate prevailing prayer. Now, greatness of prayer, in what the sense in which I'm using it, can be defined by two measurements. First of all, it can be defined by what it does in the life of the one who prays. Um, that's what happened to Chaplain Lewis. That's what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. That means that he uh, he was kind of a court jester. He had a good sense of humor. And he was always upbeat. And uh, not only was he a person of integrity that uh, the king could trust his uh, food and, his, and whatever he drank into the hands of the cupbearer, who always tasted it before he got it lest someone would slip poison to him. 
And so he had a very trusted position, responsible position. But he had this kind of happy, uh, very outgoing personality that uh, didn't have much depth until God took him apart. And then he put him together again and made him probably one of the greatest leaders that uh, the nation ever had. I remember I was invited to speak at um, the Gettysburg Conference sponsored by the Susek Evangelistic Association back in uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania a few years ago. And uh, I was to be one of the speakers and the other, another speaker was to be Dr. Cherry Falwell. And I don't want to in any way cast any aspersions on Dr. Falwell, but I can tell you honestly, when I heard that he was the, the major speaker of the conference, I felt a twinge of disappointment. Most of that was in reaction to some of his fundraising tactics and other things that I just had questions about. But I tell you, God had him there as his man. And I remember when Dr. Falwell got up to speak, he just laid aside his sermon notes and he said, I'm going to tell you about myself. And all of you are aware of the tremendous um, uh, university that he Liberty University that he heads up and his his church, his television media programs, his political involvement. And all of that was coming down, crashing around him. And he told us there was no reason for me to hope that I could avoid bankruptcy. His creditors had $17 million of claims against his many different uh, functions. And he had no answer. All of his money-making schemes had failed. And nothing was coming in. And he needed $17 million just to survive or his creditors were going to close. And so he just asked God what he should do. And God laid on his heart that he should have a 40-day fast. And he had never fasted 40 days. He'd heard Bill Bright, who was still living then, talk about 40-day fast. And he didn't know if he could do it. But God laid it on his heart so much that he agreed that he would do that. The work of the Lord was that important to him. And then he began to unfold his heart to him. He said, you know, I was fasting for $17 million. But God had me fasting because he knew there was changes need to take place in Jerry Falwell. And for those first 40 days, there was nothing happening financially. But I was being marvelously changed. God was showing me areas in my life that had displeased him. 
And I was beginning to get things right with my Lord. But at the end of the 40-day fast, he still had $17 million and no money. And he had no idea where it was coming from. And so he once again went to the Lord and said, Lord, what will I do? And there was some little interval of maybe a week or two in there. And God laid it on his heart that he should do another 40-day fast. And so he did. And he said, God began to change my heart even more. Make me a new man. And then he said toward the end of the fast, one day a phenomenal thing happened. A man came on the campus. Nobody knew much about him. He was just kind of shabbily dressed and nothing very appealing about his demeanor. But he was asking questions. He was looking around. And at the end of his stay, after he had seen all that was going on, he came to Dr. Falwell's office. And without anyone having said anything to him about the need, he wrote out a check for $17 million. And God rescued that ministry. You see, prayer like this changes you. But it also changes the desperate situation that you face. And that's what happened in his testimony. So it's measured by what it does in the life of the one praying. And then it's measured by the visible movings of God in the affairs of humanity. That's exactly what happened to Nehemiah. It's one of the most startling stories in the Bible, what God did through Nehemiah, through his leadership, through his prayer. So I think it would be just fitting for us to sort of walk through and see his desperate prevailing prayer and what it did. At least in part, we don't have time to look at the whole book, but I want to share with you some of the thoughts that you have in your outline. This kind of praying has a focus centered in the greatness of the need. And we read that in those opening verses in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. Anani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Apparently had taken a trip there uh, for some reason. We aren't told what. And uh, when he came back, I think Nehemiah actually expected to hear some pretty good report because not too long before, under Ezra, there had been a significant uh, reform and movement in the rebuilding of the of the temple, and uh, so he expected that there would be a good report. 
But what he got back was a desperate report. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when Nehemiah heard that, he was an intelligent man and he knew this was a desperate situation. Couldn't be any worse. The people that were there were in disgrace and uh, persecution, trouble. They had no defense. The walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates were burned up with fire. And the awful need began to settle in to Nehemiah. He understood this was a desperate situation. And you know, most of us never really get down to this kind of praying until somehow the desperateness of the need come home to us. And it almost sometimes frightens me of what God might have to do with our nation to touch the hearts of those of us who are Christian. Because we're the only ones that can make a difference. It's not going to be political. Political decisions, as important as they are, are not going to change it, friend. It's in your hands, in my hands. I believe 9-11 was God seeking to get the attention of his people. And help us to know just how serious the time is. We have, we have broken walls. We have burned up gates. We have people in disgrace. And somebody needs to care. A number of years ago now, uh, I was pastoring in Oak Park, Illinois, when I received a phone call from my oldest brother who lived back on the farm in Iowa. And he told me a shocking news. My parents had been driving to, uh, to town in the wintertime in December when sometimes the roads are icy. The roads happened to be clear that day except for what they called the evergreen strip. There was a row of evergreen trees on the one side of the road that shielded it from the sun. And that, my brother said, when he stepped on it, he couldn't stand up. It was so slippery. And my father hit that desperately slippery part of the road, lost control of the car, and it went end over end down into a ravine and through a, through a creek landed on the other side and both my parents were killed. It was a great shock for the family even though they were old enough to uh, to be ready to go and in many ways we could see that it was a beautiful way to go together. 
but it didn't lessen the shock and the burden. And after the funeral, and I got back to my church, I remember the day of the funeral, my oldest brother had gathered us all together, and he said, you know, we're all going to miss Mom and Dad. But he said, you know, most of all, we're going to miss their prayers. And all of us knew what he was saying. And we all had a few tears at that moment. My mother especially was a godly woman of prayer. And I know as I, well as I'm alive tonight that I'm here, part of this conference, because of the prayers of my mother. I say she watched over me. She was, there was a time in my life when I was going my own way in high school years. And I tell you, the Lord put the rod on this man, the young man at that time. And I knew I was under his discipline. And I knew it was because my mother was praying. But I remember getting back. And one day I was in my office and I just was thinking about mom and her prayers. And I said, Lord, what made mom such a prayer warrior? Will you help me have some insights? And, and he reminded me of the hardness that had come to her life. It was at the time of the Depression. And uh, my parents had lost one farm. And the other one was mortgaged for more than it was worth. And my folks were on their way to bankruptcy. And that was a very painful time, even though I was just a very little boy. I can remember my parents talking late into the night because it was an overwhelming time. They didn't know how they were going to feed their boys, how they were going to pay their bills. And it was just agony for them. Then on top of that, my mother had... Uh, a little baby girl, my little sister. And she lived only three days. She had a closed palate. And she couldn't nurse and breathe through her nose. And she would choke. And finally, in that situation, she just choked to death. And my mother was brokenhearted. My father, all of us were. But... Um, that was part of the desperate moment. And then the church in which my parents had both been converted to Christ, a little country church had fallen on difficult times because of the depression, couldn't pray a pastor anymore, and attendance began to dwindle, and they couldn't keep up the church building. And they finally sold it sold it as a grain bin to a farmer. And I can remember the day that my parents were there holding on to each other, crying. As the truck came and, and took that church building away for a grain bin. And my parents were brokenhearted. And then their son, their third son, had an asthmatic pneumonia condition. 
told him before he was six years of age, he had six bouts with pneumonia. And one day the doctor came. And he told my parents that one lung was filled and that the other lung was filling up and I couldn't live through the night. And my parents went to prayer. My mother prayed all night. And uh, it was early in the morning that God just laid on her heart that she was to make an onion poultice and put it on the chest of her son. She obeyed that. Three days later, when the doctor came to see why he hadn't been summoned to sign the death certificate, my mother had me out in the front lawn playing. And I was on my way to recovery. Now, all of a sudden, God just let me see it. The desperateness of the need, the depression, the death of my little sister. The shock and pain of their church having to be sold as a grain bin. And a son who couldn't live through the night. And God made prayer people out of my parents. And so don't despise the painful times. They may be some of your crowning moments when God is really seeking to motivate you and help you to see there's a place for desperate prevailing prayer. That's what happened to Nehemiah. And that's what God has done to the Jerry Falwells and many of the rest of us, including when I came back from Europe with a church that was in a dangerous state. Could have all exploded and evaporated. And uh, God just taught me about prayer. Desperate, prevailing prayer. It's effective. It's great in the sight of God. And it does great things. This kind of praying is centered also on the greatness of God. You'll notice that that's strongly emphasized in verse 5. Then I said, O Lord Jehovah, Elohim of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that he's praying before you. So it is it's centered upon the greatness of God. A desperate prevailing prayer knows that God's able. You don't know how. But you know he's able. And so you just lay it before him. Oh, how we need that to touch the church again. Sometimes you just wonder, you know, is, is it too late? Have we reached the point of no return? I would say apart from divine intervention and revival, it, that's where we're at. 
but God. And uh, God can turn it around. God can change it. But it all begins with your focus upon who he is. And that's what Nehemiah did. He was the great and awesome God. And if we're going to pray this way, we have to, as I said in earlier today, we have to know who God is. And that's why K. Arthur's book was such would be such a refresh. I think we have it out on the table. Uh, a very inspiring study of God's names. Understanding who he is. His attributes. His natural attributes often spoken of as his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his eternal nature, his immutable, unchanging nature, his transcendent loftiness, his absoluteness, his sovereignty, and then his moral attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his truth, his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his, his grace, his faithfulness. Somehow we just have to know God. And uh, God loves that. We saw that in Psalm 91. That uh, we understand his names. And who he is. It's a focus centered in the greatness of burden. You'll notice what happened to Nehemiah as is stated in verse 4 and, and uh, developed more in verse 6. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Have you ever done that? Has there ever been a point in your heart and life where you mourned? And you fasted. You wanted God more than you wanted food. And you wept tears. You see, these were not Nehemiah's tears. He was in touch with the heart of God. These were God's tears. God was weeping through Nehemiah for his people, for the desperate situation that uh, they were facing and his compassion went out to them. And you'll notice in verse 6 that he did this day and night. He was praying, seeking the face of God. And uh, how important it is that we be willing to ask God that he would share his heart with us. How does he feel about what he sees among his people? I believe he's weeping. I think our Lord Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And I believe he's weeping over America. And he's seeking to share his tears with us. It's also a focus centered in the greatness of repentance. You'll notice that Nehemiah 
entered into repentance at a level that uh, is really honoring to God. There, beginning in verse uh, 6, he, he begins to unfold it. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins. We Israelites, including myself, and my father's house have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. This is um, this is such a great need for our country. You'll notice that his prayer was personal. He confessed his own sins and his involvement. It was family. He confessed the sins of his family. It was about his spiritual fellowship. Those uh, people of God who made up Israel. It was about his culture and his nation. And uh, he just poured his heart out. And we need to recognize that the responsibility to repent in America belongs to you and me. If you don't share God's concern about the apathetic lethargy, about the business as usual, comfortable Christianity that's just everywhere we look. If you don't care about the drunkenness, about the sexual abuse, about the drugs, about the broken homes and broken families and broken-hearted children, if you don't care enough to cry out in repentance for it before God, who will care? Certainly not the people that are excusing themselves in their indulging in these things. And uh, so this is a part of great prayer. It's, uh, it's, you know, I really believe the whole Iraq situation is part of God trying to get our attention. God is saying, you're not going to go on the way you're going on as a nation. God is speaking through all of the terrorism, all of the world situation. And I believe the only ones that can really make a difference in this hour are those of us who care and love the Lord. And somehow God has to find a Nehemiah here and a Nehemiah there who begin to catch the vision of what God wants to do and will begin to pray and will gather others uh, to join them in this kind of intercession and prayer. It all started out with Nehemiah. He seems to have been the only one who prayed like this for some season. But then when you come down to verse uh, uh, verse uh, 11, 
you discover that there were others who had joined in this kind of prayer. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Uh, it began to spread and others began to join him in his vision and his burden and his prayer and uh, became a part of it. And then I love this next point. It was a focus centered on the greatness of God's promises. Uh, you all have heard me talk about doctrinal prayer. And in essence, that's really the heart of doctrinal prayer. It's what God said about himself, about his work, about his will and his plan and his desire. And you just begin to pray back to God what he said. And that's what Nehemiah did. Uh, you'll notice how he did that in verses 8 to 10. He said, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Here's what it says, God. Here's what you've said. If you are... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Lord, you did that. We were unfaithful. He's already repented. But if you return uh, to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled, people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place. Lord, this is what you've said, and this is what you want to do, and we're taking you at your word, and we're praying your word back to you. That's powerful praying. That's great praying. No prayer honors God any more than that kind of prayer. And uh, things begin to happen when we pray that way. And I'm speaking to myself as much as to any of you. I'm really desiring for God to do a new thing in my life in this whole area of prayer. And he's been doing that. And part of it's in the spiritual battles that uh, he's been focusing or letting focus upon my life. I've been finding myself waking up many times two or three o'clock in the morning just having to get up and go get alone with God and read through a doctrine of prayer. God, it's just let the battle be that much. I've been writing this book on revival. I don't believe there's any subject quite as threatening to the devil as the subject of revival. I experienced that when I first wrote the book and now the rewriting of it. I'm sensing the same thing. And only God's grace is going to enable me to do it. So, tonight, it's a focus centered in great expectancy.
You see, that's what this kind of prayer does. And Dr. Falwell bore testimony to that, even though visibly there was absolutely no answer for this enormous need for which there was no solution. And still, as he prayed for that first 40 days, he knew God was doing in his own heart what God needed to do. And he also knew that uh, that then that second 40 days that somehow God was going to, he had no idea what it would be, that somehow the desperate financial situation would be a remedy. And so he, he prayed and sought the face of God. And as I told you, God answered. But this man, Nehemiah, had, you know, being cupbearer to the king was a in a very important position, but not a very noble one. He had to be a trustworthy man, a man of integrity and character, and brilliant. The king would not have had anyone in his presence who wasn't that way, especially in such a trusted position. But he expected, and this was something God built into his heart as he prayed, and God laid out a plan in his mind of what God wanted to do and how God was going to do it. That he was going to touch the heart of Artaxerxes so that Artaxerxes would make Nehemiah the leader of a great expedition that would go all the way back to Jerusalem and overcome all of the things that were much like they are today people hating each other and vying for power. And uh, God would rebuild the walls, rehang the gates, reestablish the culture, and most of all, bring revival away. And in the second chapter, you'll discover that it begins to unfold. Not without battle, not without spiritual warfare, which is set forth in this book in a marvelous way, but but through prayer, through uh, just a continued walk in the will of God, it all happened. And uh, may God do it again. You know, in your in your notes, I uh, wrote down a little testimony about. Um, about John Hyde, praying Hyde, as he was known. And I thought in closing tonight, we might just read that. Um, you have it before you. And uh, it might be good for all of us to read it. Read it in unison. I've not tried that before, but I think we can do it. Uh, so turn to E2. And uh, it's just a short little two or three paragraphs um, about John Hyde. How many of you have ever read about this missionary giant? Yeah, it's quite a story. Amazing, amazing, wonderful things God did through praying Hyde. But uh, this was just before he died. He was on his last journey home. 
to our country uh, in order to uh, to uh, seek medical help, and he was on his way to glory, as I remember the story, the very time this took place. Let's read, beginning with it in 1911. Read in unison. In 1911, when John Praying Hyde was returning to America from India in great weakness and painful illness, he stopped in England to rest and to visit some fellow workers who had served in India with him. There he learned that evangelist J. Wilbur Chapman was holding meetings in a place that seemed closed and very hard. Hyde felt constrained to take up prayer in behalf of the evangelist. Dr. Chapman records the story. At one of our missions in England, the audience was extremely small, and the results seemed impossible. But I received a note that an American missionary was coming to town and was going to pray God's blessing upon our work. He was known as Praying Hyde. Almost instantly the tide turned. The hall was packed, and my first invitation met fifty men for Jesus Christ. As we were leaving, I said to Mr. Hyde, I want you to pray for me. He came to my room, turned the key in the door, dropped on his knees, waited five minutes without a single syllable coming from his lips. I could hear my own heart thumping and beating. I felt the hot tears running down my face. I knew I was with God. Then with upturned face, down which tears were streaming, he said, Oh, God. Then for five minutes at least, he was still again. Then when he knew he was walking with God, his arm went around my shoulders, and there came up from the depth of his heart such petitions for men as I have never heard before. When I rose from my knees that day, I knew what real prayer was. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for desperate prevailing prayer. We believe there's something supernatural about this kind of prayer. It's a gift from God. It requires the inflow of your grace and your mercy, your enablement, your sharing your burden and your vision with your people who have hearts open toward you. And you begin to touch them deeply. You begin to move upon their hearts. And Lord, perhaps there are those here who somehow are in that position, in that place where the God of heaven, just like you, Touch the heart of your servant Nehemiah. May be already doing your work in several hearts to somehow motivate us to prayer. And so we pray, loving Lord, have mercy upon us. 
Have mercy upon the day in which we live, upon the culture of which we're a part, a culture that you have blessed beyond measure. And uh, we rejoice in your goodness to our nation. We rejoice in, in all that you have bestowed upon us. But we have become a materialistic society, uh, a uh, do-my-own-thing society, a society that seems to have very little understanding of how we offend God and how your justice and your holiness and your wrath begin to uh, to come together against the situation that is prevailing. We pray you'll have mercy upon us, Lord, and that somehow as we go to our rest tonight and we perhaps review in our hearts what you've been saying to us today, at this final thought about the need for desperate prevailing prayer will take root in the heart and emotions of every one of us so that we cannot uh, just be the same. We cannot fall back into the old routines and the business-as-usual mentality, but that you will have your divine stirring within us. Give us, we pray, the grace to, uh, to bear the pain of that, for we know that, that this kind of praying uh, comes out of a a burden of prayer, a pain that we feel the pain of God and you share it with us. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for everyone that's present and for all that you've said to our hearts today. And so, Lord, give us all good rest. Help us to awaken refreshed and ready for a new day and just anoint the ministry tomorrow. Uh, pour out your spirit upon uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Tim as he will be uh, uh, addressing us first thing and then those two sessions where I deal with uh, the interfacing of our three enemies and uh, uh, dealing with the flesh and how it contributes to strongholds of evil beginning to rule in our lives and in our families. Lord, help the truth of the word to come home to us. Give us new insights and understanding about walking in our freedom. So bless us now. Draw us close to your own heart and uh, speak to us throughout the night. We pray for protection over us. We commit our minds and our wills, our emotions, our bodies, soul, and spirit Unto you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, blessed Spirit of God, we give you who we are. We submit to the shepherding lordship of Christ on our conscious, subconscious, and unconscious part of our person. We submit to the Holy Spirit, inviting him to work within us tonight while we sleep, enhancing our rest and uh, causing us to awaken with an awareness that God has been ministering to us even while we've slept. And then may your holy angels be attentive to watch over and keep us protected and safe. 
under your divine watchfulness. In Jesus' precious name, amen.